Welcome to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I am Jack Llewellyn coming to you from snowy and chilly Colorado. I had about eight inches of snow at my house over the weekend, and my computer says it is a balmy 17 degrees outside, so I am happy to be inside talking to you. This is podcast episode 75 for us. So another little milestone for us, and I want to thank everyone who has helped me along the way, anyone who has listened to or participated in any way in these podcasts. I really do appreciate it. I love putting together these podcasts. I like the presentation. I love discussing them afterwards. So here's to 75 episodes in the can. Looking forward to more and looking forward to more participation with you. Okay, before we talk about the topics, we've got a few topics this week um, that we're going to talk about. I want to mention a few things by way of introduction. First of all, since we talk about Mexico so much, we would be Sadly, remiss if we didn't mention the devastation in the Mexican state of Guerrero, the city of Acapulco and the surrounding area caused by Hurricane Otis last week. The devastation is real. The suffering is real. I saw a photograph yesterday showing some of the damage, and there was a stark contrast between some luxury hotels in Acapulco and the amount of damage suffered by those hotels, and the amount of damage suffered by some residential buildings that were, in some cases, just yards away. And it really reflected the disparity between rich and poor, the haves and the have-nots. And uh, it was a grim reminder of how much of an effect that has on people that economic disparity and the suffering of a lot of those who who simply don't have means to live in better places. So think about the people in Guerrero this week, and we will hope that they have a speedy and efficient recovery and that the military and the government is able to help them as much as possible. Tuesday is Halloween, which I'm sure you know. It's also the end of Red Ribbon Week, and Red Ribbon Week is a program and a, an effort. It's from the National Family Partnership, which is designed to promote leadership and um, resources, education in the area of drug prevention amongst the youth. And it's really just a drug prevention education and advocacy program designed to support families and communities to achieve their full potential and to have our youth grow up and live their lives in a healthy and drug-free manner and environment. In addition to Red Ribbon Week, which is, of course, in honor of 
DEA agent Enrique Camarena. There is also the Enrique S. Camarena Educational Foundation, which similarly is a foundation designed to eradicate drug use amongst the youth and to promote advocacy programs, promote promote educational programs and resources, again, for the idea of eradicating drug use, drug addiction, drug deaths amongst America's youth. It's a great program. Both of them are. Again, this week that, you know, the Red Ribbon Week comes to an end. Thinking about these programs, donating if you can is a great way to honor the legacy of Kiki Camarena. Also a great way to help the youth of America in the midst of this ongoing war on drugs. Then the last thing I want to mention by way of introduction is that today, and this may actually get posted on Monday, I'm recording it on Sunday night, but Sunday was or is James Kirkendall's birthday. Most of you, I'm sure, know who Jaime is, and many of you, I'm sure, have already wished him a happy birthday, but we would like to do the same thing, so we hope Jaime had a great birthday, and we look forward to celebrating his next one next year. Okay, we're going to do three things today. One is I want to talk relatively shortly or quickly about um, the border wall. We've talked a lot about immigration issues and things, and um, some news has happened over the last couple of weeks, and I've had a few questions about it. So I want to talk about the border wall, again, fairly quickly, fairly succinctly. Then I want to do a follow-up to last week's discussion about the ongoing issue of firearms, other weapons being trafficked from the United States into Mexico and ending up in the hands of cartels and cartel affiliates. Lastly, I want to talk about... Some comments I've received, some things I've heard over the last couple months that have bothered me and relate to a distinction between truth and facts. And we will get into that in just a second. So let's start with the border wall. As I said, I've had a few people ask me questions. I had somebody stop me the other day. I was wearing a Denver Petroleum Club shirt, and they stopped and asked a couple of questions about this and some related issues. And I want to do this putting politics aside. Okay, So let's talk not from a policy perspective, but from a factual perspective of what has happened. So as most of you know, Former President Donald Trump had a policy in place to build a border wall along certain portions of the border between Mexico and the United States. We can talk about how much was actually built, how much wasn't built, etc., but the policy was definitely there. When the Biden administration came in, they basically reversed that policy and said, 
We're not going to build the border wall any further. And that was a big issue both in the campaign and then the early days of the administration. Recently, however, the Biden administration announced that they were going to build additional sections of the border wall, and they admitted that some of that was going to actually reduce the number of migrants crossing from Mexico into the United States. And keep in mind, the migrants crossing from Mexico into the U.S. include lots of people not from Mexico. A couple of things that are very interesting about this change in policy, in addition to just the fact that it kind of stunned the proponents of the initial policy. So those that were against the border wall to begin with, obviously were not thrilled when uh, there was this policy change announced. We'll talk about the justification or purported justification for it in just a second. But one of the other things that's really interesting is when the policy was announced, there was a notice published in the Federal Register the same day. And this kind of flies under the radar. You know, most people don't sit around reading the Federal Register, but there was a notice published in the Register that noted that the Department of Homeland Security was going to need to waive or have waived a number of laws and regulations and other requirements that it said were necessary to ensure the expeditious construction of barriers and roads in the vicinity of the international land border in Starr County, Texas. So... A lot of those laws and regulations, which we'll talk about more in just a second, were environmental in nature. And one of the organizations that reacted to this was the Defenders of Wildlife and also the Center for Biological Diversity. The latter says, in part, that construction of the wall in Stark County likely could harm recovery plans for endangered ocelots and for medium-sized spotted wildcats. There's a quote here from um, one of the representatives of the Center for Biological Diversity, who says, every acre of habitat left in the Rio Grande Valley is irreplaceable. We cannot afford to lose more of it to a useless medieval wall that won't do a thing to stop immigration or smuggling. President Biden's cynical decision to destroy crucial wildlife habitat and seal the beautiful Rio Grande behind a grotesque border wall must be stopped. Not a hyperbole there. I went and and looked again. It it said, you know, we got to waive some laws and regulations. When you look it up, it appears that not less than 25 federal laws will be waived for construction of the border wall in Starr County, Texas. 25. And let me give you an idea of what some of these are. And these are, I'm just picking them out from the list. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, the Endangered Species Act. 
the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, the Migratory Bird Conservation Act, the Clean Air Act, the Eagle Protection Act, the National Fish and Wildlife Act of 1956, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Historical and Archaeological Preservation Act, the Noise Control Act, the Solid Water Disposal Act, CERCLA, the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation and Liability Act, the Antiquities Act, the Farmland Protection Act, and the Federal Land Policy and Management Act. Again, that's a sampling from the the larger list. So we're not talking about little regulations. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because you know that announcing the border wall is going to upset some of President Biden's constituency, mostly on the Democratic side. We can also be fairly certain that waiver of a lot of these environmental laws are likely to not sit well with a lot of President Biden's constituencies, again, largely Democratic. So why are they doing it? Well, the answer, according to administration officials, is simply that money was allocated during the Trump administration to be spent on the border wall, and it has to be spent because the administration has no other choice. Said the U.S. official, we are required to do this by law. The funding was set to expire at the end of 2023, and if we do not use it, we'd be breaking the law. Attempts to push Congress to reapportion the funding elsewhere failed. The administration continues to call on Congress to cancel or reappropriate remaining border barrier funding and instead fund smarter border security measures like border technology, which are more effective, the official said. Accept that explanation or not, but it makes a little bit of sense, as you say, when, or as I said, when you're looking at the constituencies that are going to be displeased by this action. Again, I don't want to get into the politics of the wall or or anything else. Really just wanted to say what the uh, positions were with respect to a continued funding for at least another portion of the border wall. Okay, let's go back to guns. If you remember last week, we talked about the ongoing problem the long-term problem of weapons, guns, ammunition, large-scale weaponry being trafficked from the United States into Mexico. And we looked at some of the causes. And then we looked at a news report that had only just recently come out that was talking about a former investigator for ATF who was accused of smuggling guns into Mexico while employed by ATF. And we looked through that case a little bit. I wanted to make a couple of points about that case in particular 
as a follow-up to what we discussed last week. To recap that story just a little bit more, you'll remember that the Mexican national, whose name was Jose Luis Meneses, he worked as an investigator for ATF at the U.S. consulate in Tijuana. He admitted to buying firearm parts online and at a California gun store and trafficking them into Mexico for profit back in 2017. Remember, we'd also talked about the fact that some reports had come out, one from a CBS CBS investigation, which mentioned this case and a couple of others, and that led to Senator Grassley sending a letter to the head of ATF asking for... um, information regarding different investigations and things. This case, this case from 2017 of Jose Luis Meneses was respond or was part of that letter. And in the letter from Grassley to the ATF head, he said, if these protected disclosures are true and accurate, they illustrate a failure by the ATF to hold its employees accountable for criminal misconduct. The whistleblower disclosures had accused the agency of not conducting a full investigation. The U.S. government has come back and said, wait a second, that's not exactly right. A government official said the embassy found out about suspicious activity, revoked compound access within a day, did an investigation and fired him within a month. It's terrible that it happened, but this is exactly how it's supposed to work, noting that the government had no tolerance for that sort of behavior. So I think that is important. It's also important to note that Mr. Meneses, who again was a Mexican national, he worked as an investigator with the ATF, but my understanding is he was not directly employed by ATF, but rather was with a contractor working with ATF at the consulate. So wanted to clarify those couple of points. And then as soon as we were done last week, another report came out. This one was from the San Diego Union Tribune. And it's pretty interesting as well. And I want to read some of what it says and talk about it. So the Union Tribune starts off and says, in the years after the 2016 arrest of El Chapo Guzman, a bloody power struggle between Guzman's sons, Los Chapitos, and one of his longtime business partners unleashed brutal violence across Mexico. Authorities say one of the factions fighting against Los Chapitos was a prolific drug trafficking cell with major ties to San Diego. And one of their main suppliers of guns and other weapons used to fight Los Chapitos was Alfredo Lomas Navarrete, a Culiacan cell phone store owner who helped coordinate the southbound flow of weaponry. Much of it purchased in San Diego through border crossings in San Diego and Arizona. 
Last week, uh, Lomas was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison by a federal judge in San Diego. According to prosecutors, Lomas supplied hundreds of weapons and tens of thousands of rounds of ammunition to the cartel cell known as the Valenzuela Drug Trafficking Organization. Prosecutors said many of the weapons, which included 50 caliber rifles, machine guns, and grenade launchers, were acquired in California, Arizona, and Nevada. Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Sutton in sentencing documents wrote, the majority of firearms trafficked into Mexico, including high caliber and assault weapons, are shipped from the United States. The rise of privately made firearms or ghost guns has only made this problem more acute. These weapons empower drug cartels to intimidate local communities, challenge state authority, and expand their deadly drug trade back into the United States. Uh, Lomas was prosecuted as part of a decade-long probe into the Sinaloa cartel and its San Diego ties known as Baja Metro. And that operation allegedly targeted the Valenzuela drug trafficking cell, which prosecutors said was a significant component of the Sinaloa cartel and currently one of the largest importers of cocaine into the United States. The group was led by Jorge Alberto Valenzuela Valenzuela, who pled guilty to a trio of conspiracy charges involving cocaine trafficking and money laundering. In his plea agreement, Valenzuela agreed and admitted that he was a leader in a drug trafficking organization associated with the Sinaloa cartel. His sister was a Chula Vista restaurateur um, who stepped into the void created by the slaying of another brother um, who had been a logistics and financial operating operator of a money laundering network for uh, El Mayo. Federal authorities said they'd been trying to dismantle the Valenzuela cell since late 2020 when Jorge Valenzuela was arrested when he flew on a private plane from San Diego to Boston. Prosecutors said the police seized dozens of cell phones during his arrest and a short time later were able to conduct a large bust at the family's operations, which included huge stashes of guns. This is their quote, huge stashes of guns, drugs, and cash at a uh, San Diego warehouse and other locations. Again, it said that his sister was his right-hand woman. She also pleaded guilty. The um, sentencing documents reveal little about exactly where or how his co-conspirators acquired the weaponry, but they allege that many of the weapons and ammunitions were acquired in the United States, including California, Arizona, and Nevada. Prosecutors allege that dozens of messages between Lomas and Jorge Valenzuela discussed the procurement of AK-47 rifles, 
grenade launchers, other high-powered weapons, ballistic vests, and helmets. In his defense, his lawyer said that uh, he was a law-abiding citizen who ran a cell phone service and store in Culiacan. The drug traffickers began using his services. They purchased phones from him. He programmed them, repaired them, and his business grew. And at some point in time, the traffickers began to ask him to do more and more things for them. And Mr. Navarro had agreed because they were the foundation of his business. The defense went on to say Lomas was never a member of the organization, but he did acknowledge that he knew the tasks he was performing were facilitating their drug trafficking endeavors. Lomas wrote a letter to the judge calling for help, forgiveness, and repentance. I apologize from the bottom of my heart for what I did and what I caused. There is not a day that goes by that I do not regret it, he wrote. He also told the judge about his two young daughters. Notwithstanding those pleas, again, he was sentenced to 15 years in federal prison. This is just another example of showing the concrete operations that we know about going on between the United States and Mexico, in addition to the ones that we discussed last week. One of the other things that I didn't mention last week when you were talking about drugs were some or guns, I'm sorry, were some of the lawsuits that have been filed. So in August of 2021, Mexico filed a complaint against gun manufacturers in the United States. And in the complaint, Mexico estimated that more than 2% of the nearly 40 million guns made annually in the United States were smuggled into Mexico. And think about that for just a second. Sometimes the numbers just blow my mind. 40 million guns made annually in the United States. That's incredible. So Mexico, again, in its complaint said smuggling was a key factor in Mexico ranking third worldwide in the number of gun-related deaths. And it also said the other harms as a result of this gun trafficking included declining investment, declining economic activity, and increased spending on law enforcement and public safety. That complaint was dismissed a little more than a year later in September of 2022. The decision by a federal court in Boston basically granted a summary judgment to the defendants, which included Smith & Wesson, Sturm Ruger and Company, Barrett Firearms, Beretta USA, Colt Manufacturing, and Glock Inc. The federal judge said that unequivocally, federal law bars lawsuits seeking to hold gun manufacturers responsible when people use guns for their intended purpose. While the court has considerable sympathy for the people of Mexico and none whatsoever for those who traffic guns to Mexican criminal organizations, it is duty-bound to follow the law. He cited to a law called the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, and that act 
shields gunmakers from lawsuits over the harm solely caused by the criminal or unlawful misuse of firearm products by others when the product functioned as designed and intended. So that case got dismissed in September 2022. A month later, Mexico filed another lawsuit. So that was October of 22. This time, the lawsuit by the Mexican government was against five U.S. gun shops and distributors it said were responsible for some of the flow of illegal weapons into Mexico. It was filed in Arizona Federal District Court, and the lawsuit's contention here is that these gun shops and dealers in Arizona, as well as others in different U.S. border states, sold guns to straw purchasers who passed them on to smugglers who then took them in to Mexico. So Mexico is suing for monetary damages and other things. Uh, allegedly, they picked the five worst stores to name the lawsuits. And these were three gun outlets in Tucson, one in Phoenix, and one in Yuma. The representative for the Mexican government said they are not careful when they sell products, so they allow straw purchasers to buy guns. We are saying they are negligent and facilitate straw purchasers to the point of being accomplices. So that's part of what's, you know, what's coming down the pike. Um, They have not, that case is still pending. I could not find anything that would talk about, I looked at the docket to try and see if there were summary judgment motions coming up. I didn't find anything. Um, And maybe somebody else out there knows more than I do about the current status of that. But those are the cases going on. So what are some additional thoughts about um, the drug, the problem of trafficking weapons, buying weapons in the United States, having them smuggled into Mexico and smuggled into the hands of cartels and, and other criminals. One of the things I was thinking about today is think about fentanyl. Remember early on, how did most fentanyl or fentanyl precursors enter the United States from China? By Federal Express and by mail. Is there any reason to think that there isn't a significant issue with that going on with respect to guns, weapons, weapon parts? Obviously, it's harder to send an AK-47 through the mail, but you can send parts, you can break them down into, you know, numerous packages. So is that one of the problems? Remember, too, when we were talking about Mr. Meneses, the uh, consulate employee in Tijuana, he admitted that he bought firearm parts 
online. And so then I started looking at the amount of weapons and weapon-related components that one can buy freely online, including through services such as Amazon. And if you start looking around, there's a lot of them. And so I submit to you that one of the problems with this if you admit that the trafficking of the weapons is a problem, one of the issues is we're not able to stop it from going from the United States in the first place through these carriers, you know, FedEx, UPS, maybe even just the mail, as well as online means, including but not limited to Amazon. The other thing we know is that most drugs, or a lot of the drugs that flow the other way, that flow northward from Mexico into the United States, go through border crossings. And there's no reason to assume that the reverse isn't true. But it also makes you think, is there a complicity going on between common carriers you know, carriers that would normally ship in the flow of commerce various items between the United States and Mexico that are being used for this process, for this trafficking operation. And if so, is enough being done to try to prevent that from happening? The more and more I look into it, too, the greater sense I have is that there is a heavy dose of corruption, probably on both sides of the border, but certainly on the Mexican side of the border, which should not come really as a surprise to anyone. The last thing I'll say about this situation is that contrary to some politicians some pontificators on social media, there are no easy solutions. If you said, darn it, we're going to stop the flow of firearms from the United States to Mexico, and we're going to do it in the next couple of months, and you had the power, it would be a difficult decision on exactly what to do first and what to do next. Can you slow it down by working with or against, if the case may be, these common carriers, the the FedEx or Amazon or other carriers? Probably. Could you work on the corruption issue? Sure. But you're not going to stop everything clearly and you may end up in a situation with fingers in the dike. You f- you fix one problem and another comes up. Again, you know, we've mentioned it over and over and over with respect to drugs. As long as you have a demand, there's going to be a supply. And we know there's going to be a demand for weapons in Mexico by the cartels who just happen to have a heck of a lot of money. So. That's a a little bit of my feelings with respect to the guns, and I hope um, 
we've we've at least talked through the issue some. I want to spend just a couple of minutes talking about what is truth and what are facts and what's the difference and why do I get so worked up when people talk about truth in a absolute sort of way. So first of all, let's make this point clear. Facts are objective. Facts can change. We'll talk about that in a second. But facts are objective. The truth, however, is always subjective. Why? Because truth is perceptible. That is, humans only experience that portion of reality that is accessible by their mental faculties and their senses. Let me reiterate that. Our perception of reality is necessarily limited by the scope of our mental faculties and our senses. Simple example. It's 74 degrees in here. That's a fact. We could say that. And we say, how do you know it's 74 degrees? Because I got a thermostat and it says it's 74 degrees. One person could be in that room and say, it is hot in here. I am super hot. That's true. That's their truth, right? On the other hand, someone could say, it's cold in here. I need a sweater. That's their truth as well. And the facts can change, right? We could say, oh, you know what? It wasn't 74 degrees in here. It was 68. The thermostat was wrong. That doesn't mean that the initial fact wasn't a fact. It was a fact at that time. But facts can change. You can learn more information. And you can think about it on a broader scale. Let me give you two examples. So in my spare time, in addition to practicing law and doing these podcasts and things, I like to talk about astrophysics. Not in the mathematical proving things, but in the sense of kind of a philosophical discussion about space and time and gravity and those sorts of things. In the 1970s, there was a pair of Westinghouse scientists who discovered something called the cosmic background radiation. They were actually looking for something else. They were trying to um, to identify some noises that kept interrupting this um, project that they had and, and trying to explain it in generalized terms. But they, they kept getting this noise and eventually they figured out it was noise coming from space. And the thought now is that that background radiation is noise, not in the sound sort, but it's noise that emanated from the beginnings of our universe. And some people, including, for example, like Dr. Brian Green, have said, this is 
proof of and evidence of the Big Bang. And he's gone so far as to say, you know, the Big Bang isn't a theory, it's a fact. How do we know it's a fact? Because we can damn well see it through the cosmic background radiation. So what? what's the fact? The fact is that there's this cosmic background radiation. The truth is that some people say, hey, that is evidence of the Big Bang. Others, using that same evidence, that same documentation, say, you know, there's a different explanation for it. It doesn't necessarily mean that it was the Big Bang. By the way, the Big Bang doesn't mean the beginning of the universe. And I don't like calling it the Big Bang Theory either. But be that as it may. So you can have different points of view. Here's another one. There's something called redshift. As light goes, travels a further distance, it gets to, it shifts, turns into red, uh, not in a necessarily in a color sense, but in a spectrum sense. And the farther away of the light, the greater the increase in the redshifts. And um, a, a scientist in 1927 and then Hubble in 1929 said, hey, if we use Einstein's theory of general relativity, we use this redshift, we can conclude and determine what the age of the universe is. We just work backwards from this redshift. And as a result, we do all the math and we come up with an age of the universe that's about 13.8 billion years. Well, we ended up doing a little bit more work and found out that it was a little bit closer to 13.797 billion years, which doesn't sound like a big difference, but you know, half of a billion years is still quite a bit of years. So, so anyways, 13.79, 13.8 billion years. Well, recently, a different cosmologist said, wait a second, wait a second. If you reinterpret this redshift as a hybrid th- phenomenon that's not tied simply to expansion, then, and I won't go into all the details, but then you can calculate the age of the universe differently. And when you do, you come up with something closer to 28 billion years or about double the current prediction. So what do we have as a fact? We have as a fact that there is something called redshift. And then you have two scientists or two groups of scientists reaching out saying, based on that fact and our analysis, we have something else and we believe it to be true. Parenthetically, everybody in the world (laughs) thinks that the 13.8 is the more realistic One, because other factors, there's other ways to measure the age of the universe besides redshift, and those come out relatively close to 13.8 as well, but not exactly. So anyways, here becomes the problem, and here's why I brought this up. 
I am beyond tired of people saying, because I know the facts, I also know the truth. And I have the sole truth. I have the facts, therefore I have the truth. And if your truth doesn't match my truth, you're wrong and I'm right. And you hear that from politicians. You hear that from military people. You hear that from some scientists. You hear it from some law enforcement. And in my mind, that is completely wrong and it's counterproductive. It doesn't help us in a civilized society to be able to find greater truths by understanding other people's truths. The fact of the matter is, let's go back to to this redshift. These are impressive people, unbelievably qualified. Brilliant scientists who take the same set of facts and reach different conclusions. But being good scientists, they disagree with one another, but they don't necessarily say you're wrong and you have to be wrong. By the same token, if I say, here are the facts that I know with respect to whatever the case may be, let's say, let's give the example. Everybody knows. Anybody who's listening to this podcast knows that I don't believe that the CIA was directly responsible for the kidnapping, interrogation, or murder of Agent Camarena. That's based on everything I know. All the facts that I've been able to acquire. If you're going to say you're wrong, it better be something more than somebody saying I was there, I was in the DEA, I was head of land, or whatever the case may be, I know the facts, and the truth is that you are wrong. If you want to add facts to the mix so that my truth can change, that's one thing. But simply to say, I have the facts and my truth is right, is counterproductive, It's intellectually dishonest, and it does not promote a dialogue that can help us in almost every facet of life. Policy-wise, science-wise, intellectual honesty about things. Okay, that's probably enough of a rant for today. Next week, we're going to talk about one of two things. We're going to go in a slightly different direction. Um, I ran across an academic report that I'd never seen before that talks about CDS and its management style in a slightly different way that I think is really interesting. So we may talk about that. I also was turned on to a CIA memo written a few months after Agent Camarena's murder, that's also incredibly interesting. So we'll talk about one or the other, and maybe even both of those. I put in a pitch every week, um, but the newsletter is really cool. It's got some great stuff. All it requires is an email. It goes into your inbox, 
every Sunday. Uh, I think you'd enjoy it. Let me know if you'd like to subscribe. And again, Red Ribbon Week ends on Halloween. At a minimum, give some thought and appreciation to the memory and legacy of Kiki Camarena. Happy birthday, Jaime Kirkendall. And with that, we will see you next week on Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care.